commitment to the Word of God and the joy we have in it together, and uh, the joy we have of studying the Gospel of Luke, um, which to me just keeps getting better and better, um, and we get to enter into a new chapter this morning. So I like to let these milestones be known to you so that you do know we're making progress. And uh, chapter 7, uh, we're, we're actually, this is somewhat of a new section in uh, the Gospel of Luke that we are beginning. Not a major section break, but uh, kind of more of a minor one. And chapter 7 has so much good uh, stuff for us in it. And I was just telling someone this week that uh, I want to go faster because I want to get to some of these other stories. And then I'm like, but no, some, like I, I can't skip over some of these other parts. And it's just so good. And so I hope you'll uh, enjoy that as well as I am. Um, this morning, we are looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Verses 1 to 10. And we're looking at the faith of the centurion. So, if you're not there already, turn there, and we will look at Luke chapter 7. Follow along as I read. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the living God. As the story goes, the mathematician Archimedes was tasked by a ruler to find out if the ruler's crown was truly made of gold as it purported to be. And so Archimedes thought about how he might do this and he went to the bathhouse and as he got into the bath, as the story goes, uh, he noticed that the water was displaced as he got in. The water rose as he put his body into it and it gave him an idea and he realized that through displacement, he could potentially measure the density of the, the crown against uh, uh, other substances and test to see if it was truly uh, made of gold. And so as the story, uh, the legend goes, some, some doubt its authenticity, but you know, for our sake this morning, pretend it's true. Uh, he, he apparently realizes uh, th this, this um, 
the change in the density and the ability to, to realize this, and he jumps out of the bath and says, Eureka! And he ran through the streets uh, with this new discovery. Um, of course, we're familiar with the phrase or the term Eureka. It comes from the Greek word, which really means uh, I find or I found. And the idea uh, became popular as well in uh, the 49ers, uh, among the 49ers in the gold rush in California, when people were looking to, to make it big and find gold. And uh, there was a lot of um, uh, what's known as pyrite that people were discovering, which is also known as fool's gold. And so they had to sift through that and make sure. Sometimes they would bite it to see. And when they would come across real genuine gold, they might yell out, Eureka! Because they found real gold. And it actually became the motto for the state of California. Eureka! As we've been studying Luke, we have noted that there is real saving faith and there is fake saving faith. We might say that there is a, a fool's gold faith and then there is a true faith. Jesus warned about uh, such faith in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, those who build without a foundation. And in this next story, in chapter 7, where we find ourselves, we have the story of extraordinary faith. And in fact, Luke uses the Greek word hurisko, I found, I found uh, to declare Jesus' discovery. Look at verse 9. He says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found. And that's our word, where we get the word eureka from. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, Eureka! Faith! <laughs> this man has faith, unlike anyone else that I've come across. Here, Jesus finds true faith, a rare find, a rare find at this time in his ministry. Uh, in addition to that, this is one of two times in the Gospels where Jesus is marveled, where he marvels at something. Uh, this is one of them, and we'll see the other one a little bit later. But he marvels at this, and usually people are marveling at Jesus. They're astonished at Jesus. Uh, in fact, the end of the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew's account uh, says that as he, as he came down from the mountain, they were marveling at him and his authority, and, and they really were saying, no one speaks like this man. He speaks as one with authority and not like our scribes uh, teach us. What impresses Jesus? That's the, the focus of this passage. What does Jesus marvel at? And the answer is faith in him. Do you want to impress Jesus with your life? Then trust in him. Now, just think about how amazing that is, that setup is. It doesn't make much of you. Uh, it makes much of Christ. So what impresses Christ is when you make much of Christ by trusting in him, finding him to be trustworthy. It's amazing the placement here. This is, sometimes the gospel writer's role will place things thematically, but here, uh, Matthew and Luke place this story here because it actually happened right after the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is the perfect illustration. Jesus has been talking about true kingdom citizens, what true faith looks like, and then, wouldn't you know it, he comes and meets this guy, 
And here's a perfect living example of true faith, of incredible faith in Christ. And wouldn't you know it? It's from a Gentile, a Roman of all people. And so this is why this is indicating a new section to us in chapter seven. It runs through chapter eight. Uh, The main idea I think we could summarize in these chapters is gonna be about the identity of Jesus. And that's not completely new to Luke. He's been talking about the identity of Jesus, but there's maybe a new audience in, in a way, a special focus. And there, there's a, a focus in, the, in these chapters upon Gentiles, and there's a focus on women. And so these are those who are the more marginalized in, uh, in, in the community. And so here we have this focus, especially on Gentiles. And, and we'll, we'll prove that out as we work through these chapters. There's so much good stuff here. I can't wait to get to. I mean, it just connections to the Old Testament that I don't know if I've made before until I've seen them. And then it's like, you can't unsee them. And you're like, that's incredible. What, what Luke is doing here is he's, as he's showing how great Jesus is and who's that, what his identity is. And so we're going to see that as we continue to work through these and see the identity of Jesus, how great he really is. But this is somewhat of a new crowd here. He's been speaking to the Jews, and Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He's the one who will bring to pass all the promises made to Israel because he is the true Israelite. None of their promises will fail because he will ensure that they come to pass. Jesus is also going to fulfill what God promised for the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And so he begins to go to Gentiles. This This isn't an accident. This is intentional. Jesus is intentionally going. He's gonna start to go to Gentile regions even and he's gonna bring the gospel there. And what we find in our passage is that Jesus has already been preparing the hearts of Gentiles for him. He's preparing the soil for the gospel, and that's what we see in this man's life. Remember, Luke is, in a a way, especially focused on Gentiles. He's writing to a man named Theophilus, who is a leader uh, in the uh, the government in some way, most likely, and so he is, uh, what, what, what we have with the centurion here and some of these others is especially relevant to someone like Theophilus and to us as well. Now, uh, some have observed, and I think this is legit, that, that these chapters, um, seven and eight, f- kind of are like a sandwich, right? If, if I wanted to bore you, we would call it a chiasm, right? Uh, but really, if, if you can understand what a chiasm is. It's a literary device, but with a sandwich, right? We talk about sandwiches based on their meat, right? We don't say like, oh, a white bread sandwich, right? Uh, unless I guess you go to Subway, then you have to pick your bread first. But, but we say like, oh, this is, you know, a turkey sandwich. You name the, the meat, right? Because that's the main thing. That's the middle thing. Well, that's the idea here. And, and if you notice, um, just scanning across chapter seven and eight, and you can read these on your own later, but you'll see that it begins with two miracles, our miracle here in 1 to 10, and then the next one, as Jesus interrupts a funeral and raises a boy from the dead in verses 11 to 17, there's these two miracles that demonstrate Jesus' power and uh, his power over death and his compassion. Uh, He's gonna heal the centurion's servant in our text who's near death, and then he's gonna heal someone who is dead and bring them, resuscitate them again. So, Two miracles, demonstrating Jesus' power over death and compassion. And then, uh, uh, that's like bread one, right? Bread number two is uh, in chapter eight, verses 22 to 56, and you have four miracles that demonstrate Jesus' power over death and compassion, 
right? And so you see uh, his miracles over disease, over demons, over danger. Uh, and, um, and so you see it, him continuing to, and over death. So you have these two breads, and then you have like, we'll call them the, you know, the lettuce and tomato, okay? Uh, that's the next. So the first one of that is the explanation of Jesus' ministry and is the responses to him in verses 18 to 35 in chapter 7. And this is where John the Baptist begins to ask questions about Jesus and, and his ministry. And, and then uh, the, the faithless generation is rebuked. Then uh, the second, you know, uh, lettuce is in chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. And those are the parables, the parable of the soil, and the sower. And that also is an explanation of Jesus' ministry and the responses to him. You know, the parable of the sower is four different responses to Jesus. So you're seeing these parallels. And then, so what is the meat? What is in the middle? And what is in the middle is verses 36 to 50 in chapter 7. And it's when Jesus forgives sins and he saves. It is the woman who comes and she uh, anoints Jesus' feet, she, she weeps, she, she, she dries his feet with her hair. You have this response from this uh, Pharisee who shows no hospitality to Jesus and this woman who has been forgiven a great debt, she realizes it and she loves Jesus much because she has been forgiven much. It's a great story. And that seems to be the focal point in this section as she realizes who Jesus is and she experiences this forgiveness and great love for Christ. So here's a person who's rightly understood who Jesus is, whereas Simon does not understand. And then you see the right response to seeing who Jesus is. Great love at the forgiveness he brings. And so we find ourselves in the beginning, in the first piece of bread, if you will. And that's where we are in verses 1 to 10, this first miracle of two miracles that go together. And we're going to see Jesus is, in a way, transitioning to the Gentiles. No doubt he'll return back to uh, focus on Israel, but there is a lot more focus here on Gentiles in this section. And he has been preparing them for this. One other note here as we get into the text. The text is not, you'll notice, focused upon the healing of this servant. That is what happens, but the focal point is on the centurion's faith. That becomes the opportunity, the circumstance to talk about this man's faith. So that's the focus, the exclamation of this man's faith. And so we really want to look at that, keep that as the focal point, and see four marks of the faith that caused Jesus to marvel. Four marks of the faith that caused Jesus to marvel. And we just have four words here. Uh, that we're going to use to hang our thoughts on. The first is unlikely. Unlikely in verses 1 to 3. This is an unlikely faith. An unlikely faith. Look at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And so here's the, here's the context. The the ge geographical context, it's Capernaum. And he has left the Sermon on the Mount, the plain. We just studied that. He's finished that. And so that's, it's not that far uh, from the location of the Sermon on the, Ma the Mount, the plain. And he, he walks to this city. You can go there today. You can go to Capernaum and, uh, and see that city. It's, uh, we, it's kind of been home base for Jesus as we've been studying Luke. He's been there. He's done things there. Uh, it, it is uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And it is a fishing town. Jesus has done miracles there already, and so he returns back there. And it's a key place to pass through in travel. And then in verse 2, we read, Now a centurion, 
had a servant or a slave who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Here we meet uh, our main character, the centurion, and he has a, a slave. Uh, what, are, what is a centurion? Well, they're a Roman military officer who likely commanded 100 men or around 100 men Think of a century, right? A century is 100 years. So that's how you can remember how many they were over. And so he has great responsibility. Um, the way it worked in the, the, the Roman government as far as pay went was that uh, the centurions got paid quite a bit of money for overseeing compared to an individual soldier. Uh, Daryl Bach says this, that centurions earned significant amounts of money in a period where the lowest paid soldier earned 75 denarii. A centurion earned between 3,750 denarii and 7,500 denarii. That's quite a gap between uh, these two, between, be, between your ordinary soldier and a centurion. So and, and somewhere in that gap. And so this man was likely very wealthy by his position. He's a Gentile, no doubt. And he's, he's put there in this region of Capernaum in God's providence to have a detachment of soldiers during that time, as during the Roman occupation. And so why is this significant? Why, why highlight the centurion? Well, Jesus is moving toward the Gentiles, showing his heart for them. And Luke wants us to see that. that God is working among the unlikely. Now, this, this centurion has a servant. It's the word slave, really. Um, and the, the word that's used as well, there's a, a word that's used for like a younger person. And so... Uh, probably a teenager, maybe, uh, and this is this slave is like an intern for the the centurion of sorts, uh, and yet this slave's life is uh, greatly imperiled. Matthew says in his account uh, that in Matthew eight that he was paralyzed. Luke focuses more on the, the reality that he is very near to death; he, he is about to die. The centurion cared for his slave and longed to see him healed, which, which that is impressive as well based on things that we read in the ancient Near East about slaves, uh, or, or not the ancient Near East, but the first century rather, and, and just they, they were viewed kind of like a tool in some cases. And uh, so he has this great affection for his slave. We know what it's like to feel helpless when a loved one is, is sick and we don't really have anything we can do for them and help them. So with the mercy of others, and he, this is the situation of the centurion. And God brings this circumstance into his life to reveal his faith. Uh, that's often what God does. He brings adverse, difficult circumstances, and it shows the nature of faith. And that's the case here with the centurion. His slave becomes sick. Look at verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. Now, mind you, this man has never met Jesus before. He's never met him. He had only heard of Jesus. Just think of the, I mean, all the things Jesus has been doing already and the messages spreading about and he's hearing, he's in Capernaum. Jesus has been doing incredible works and he, he knows about Jesus. He knows about his person, about his works, his teaching. And, and so it's likely he's already believed in Jesus. He believes in Jesus, much like Theophilus and us. 
Right? So think about how significant this is for Luke to use this character because Theophilus is a guy who hasn't met Jesus either and yet he believes in him, presumably, and trusts in him. And here's a man who hasn't met Jesus and yet here he is believing in him and he's a Gentile. This is our situation. We're Gentiles and we haven't met Jesus, like physically, and yet we believe. And so that's what we have here. He knows Jesus has the power to do something and potentially the willingness, so he seeks to make contact with Jesus. And here's where things get kind of fascinating because here you have a Roman soldier who's a Gentile asking Jews to get Jesus for him. He sends the Jewish elders, and, and don't, it's probably wrong to think about like the Pharisees here. This is likely the, the leaders of the synagogue in Capernaum because they'll reference, hey, he built our synagogue. So they're locals, and they are not probably from Jerusalem, but they're from Capernaum, most likely. And he knows these guys, and they love him. That's incredible <laughs> that these guys have a good relationship with this Gentile, that these, these Jews have a good relationship with him. And this is incredible on multiple levels. What's also interesting is if you, if you read closely, you'll find it doesn't seem like this man ever talks to Jesus face to face in the story. Now, Matthew, Matthew makes it seem like he does, but if you compare the accounts, it's likely that his representatives serve as this man appearing before him. Like if we said like, oh, the president brought a bill to Congress, right? Uh, and um, we would say, well, yeah, he didn't actually walk there, but he, his delegates or whatever. And so... Uh, so, so you have this idea of uh, the, uh, the, the man's representatives going on behalf of Jesus, and that's what Luke focuses on. He never actually t talks to Jesus. In, in addition to that, it's very fascinating that here, as we move towards the Gentile section in Luke, you have Israel functioning like, like they were probably supposed to function, <laughs> bringing Gentiles to Jesus. And yet, they don't even know that they're doing it necessarily. And so he's, it's like the Gentiles are coming to Israel, coming to uh, Israelites and saying, hey, can you get me to the Messiah? Get me to the truth. And that's how Israel was to function in their history. They, they didn't do it as they ought to have. And yet, they were to be a light to the Gentiles, to the other nations. And here, it's kind of happening in a way. And so they're going to bring the message of this man's desperate situation to Jesus. Now, how unlikely for this man to have faith in Jesus. He's a Gentile, not a Jew, he hasn't grown up with this teaching. He's a Roman, Roman soldier, and yet God just places providentially. He places him here at this time in history, and it just so happens it's the very time when Jesus is doing an incredible amount of miracles. And this guy's hearing all about it, and he goes, he knows about his sin, he knows about his condition, and Jesus is just reading his, his thoughts, even though he's never met him. But as he hears about this, he's going, there is, there's truth in what this man is saying. And, and he comes to embrace him. How unlikely! He exercises faith and he hasn't even seen Jesus. And yet he trusts in him. We're not even given his name. We don't know this guy's name. He's just a centurion. And yet he represents many who experience the gift of faith. In fact, there are three centurions that come up uh, the, in the Gospels, uh, especially Luke focuses on them. And 
you have this man here who exercises faith. You have the man who's crucifying Jesus. After he's crucified, he says, surely this man was the son of God. And he's converted. (laughs) And then you have Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, Luke volume two, and he is converted as well. All these unlikely centurions who are coming to faith in Christ. I mean, do you ever reflect on the fact that you go like, man, it is so unlikely that I am a Christian, <laughs> that I believe in Christ, that I'm sitting in this room right now. Like, what am I doing here? It is God's grace. I mean, for all of us in some sense, theologically, we could say, it is so unlikely that we believe in Jesus. And yet, here you are. <laughs> here you are trusting. And so here's this man with unlikely faith. You know, here's the bigger point that Luke is making. This man's faith is unlikely, but that's because Jesus is working to prepare the hearts of Gentiles for the gospel, even now, even at this early stage. And this is what this section is about. He's preparing their hearts. And here, here's a, here's a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile. Unlikely faith. Second, we see unworthy. That's our second word, unworthy. Unworthy faith. Verses Four and five, look there. Verse four. And when they came to Jesus, they pled with him earnestly, saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. Here we learn a little bit more about the centurion. This this man is a very generous man. Not only is he concerned about the health of his slave, but he's very generous. He loves the Jews, He's come to love them. And these Jewish leaders are pleading with Jesus to come help this man. They're not reluctant. They really want Jesus to come and help this man. And how do they do it? What is their logic? Well, they're like, well, Jesus, I mean, this guy is a good guy. I mean, if there ever was a guy who was worthy, it's this guy. He is so worthy for you to do this miracle. You gotta come. He deserves it. <laughs> That's their logic. And it's interesting. Jesus doesn't stop them there, correct their theology. He just comes. He just comes. But notice why they think he's so worthy. Verse 5, he loves our nation. In God's providence, he brought this man into contact with Jews, and, and he comes to have an affection for them. Maybe he, because he realizes that they have the way back to Eden. They are the people whom God is using as a portrait to say, Eden isn't lost. We can get back there through Yahweh, through his means. And so he's come to potentially to recognize, potentially he's what's called technically a God-fearer. We're not certain of that, but it seems likely. In other words, a Gentile proselyte, uh, a, convert, a convert to Judaism. But we're not told that explicitly. But he has a respect for their nation. And then here's what he did because he loves them. He is the one who built us our synagogue. It's emphatic here. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know if he actually was like getting his hands dirty, putting bricks up or whatever, but he is the, the idea, it, the lowest common denominator is he, he financed this thing. He paid for the thing. And um, you can go to Capernaum today and there's a synagogue there. It's not the synagogue that was in Jesus' day, but it's the, like the next one. It's the next one that got built. And so it's likely on the same foundation. And so, uh, and maybe from some of the same bricks after the first one got knocked down. So, so 
the, the testimony of this man's work is still evident even today. He, he built the synagogue. I mean, how could you get more worthy? I mean, if this guy's not worthy, no one is worthy. I mean, this guy built the church. You know, it's like, well, how, how in the world? And so they're pleading with Jesus to come. They're pleading with him. Verse six, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. So these are, this is a different delegation. This is a different group of representatives. And they said to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did, I did not presume to come to you, but I say the word, let my servant be healed. And notice the contrast in the way that the Jewish leaders represent this man and how they think about this man and how this man thinks of himself. And there's an intentional contrast here, right? He, they're saying, this guy's so worthy. He, he, he's done all these great things. And this man stops you. Jesus is like approaching the house and the man does not go out to meet Jesus. He sends friends and says, stop him. He cannot come in here. I'm not worthy. They tell Jesus how he is worthy. He tells Jesus he's not worthy. And there's like, Jesus, you know, uh, you guys, you know, get your story right here. What, what's the deal? What's going on? Now some, at this point, I think they go astray and they'll say like, oh, he doesn't want him to come into his house because it would be defiling to go into a Gentile's house. No, that's definitely uh, a thing in this day. But if that were the case, uh, why would this man not have just gone himself initially? Or why wouldn't he just come outside of his house and meet Jesus? So it's not that he's just worried about Jesus defiling himself coming in the house. It's more that he himself is defiled. He himself does not want to be in Jesus' presence because he doesn't think he's worthy to be in Jesus' presence. It's about him personally. He doesn't even come out of the house to, to greet Jesus so he doesn't have to come in the house. He, he, he's just sending people to represent him. The man recognizes his sinfulness and unworthiness even to be in Jesus' presence. Now, this is fascinating. Um, there's two words that are used here for worthy. Um, ESV translates them both as worthy, uh, but there's, there's two different words, and it's just fascinating. Um, the Jewish leaders use a word uh, in verse 4 that this man is worthy, and that word it tends to refer to something's worth in comparison to something else. It's like you put something on scales and you compare the two. And so uh, here the man picks up on that word through his servants and he sends his servants and he says in verse, um, verse seven, it actually doesn't come out in ESV, but in verse seven, therefore I did not presume to come out to you. Um, it's that idea of what they're saying about him. Like I'm not worthy to come out to you as he compares his worth to Jesus' worth. But then the man in verse 6 uses a different word for himself when it says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And this word is more like the idea of, it's like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And, it, and it, one writer says this, it, uh, it communicates the idea of being of sufficient ability, status, or qualification for something. It's used in a number of places. John the Baptist uses it when he says that he's not fit to remove Jesus' sandals. Paul says, uh, uses this word, and he says, who is sufficient for these things? 
talking about gospel ministry. Who, who's sufficient for these things? Or John the Baptist, I'm not worthy, I'm not fit to untie his sandal. And, and that's the word this man uses. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not worthy enough to have you come under my roof. Very much like John the Baptist, I, I can't even untie your sandal, the strap. And really what's happening here is Luke is using both words and, and they say he's worthy. The man uses that term and says, I'm not that worthy. I'm also not this worthy. And so yes, there's some synonyms going on. But the idea is like, I'm not worthy in any sense of the word or its synonyms to be in your presence. I mean, this guy gets it. He is so humble as he approaches or doesn't approach Jesus. And that's what's so beautiful about his faith. He sees himself as totally unworthy. He's not entitled. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is it. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He's unentitled. He doesn't see God as owing him. And if you contrast this with the demand for a sign in chapter four, hey, show us a sign, Jesus, do something for us. This is so unlike that. They, they saw themselves as entitled in chapter four. This man knows who Jesus is and who he is before Jesus. He doesn't deserve anything. Now, what's amazing, in addition to that, is that before other men, this man is significant. He's a centurion. He is significant in, the, in, in people's estimation of him. He's known. He's respected. And yet, when he comes into contact with Jesus, he's nobody. <laughs> the, the most significant people become insignificant before Jesus in this sense. Great people are unworthy before Jesus. And he recognizes this in his presence, in the presence of one who has divine power. This is, this is Peter's response. Remember, after the great catch of fish, this immense power that Jesus has in Luke chapter five, verse eight. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus is in his presence and he's like, I need to get out of here or Peter's in his presence, he needs to get out. He, this man's not in his presence, and he sees, I can't be in your presence. And by way of application, notice that people might think you are a good person, you are worthy of God, you are uh, whatever, a righteous person, and that may not be the truth, right? Here, the people of his day said, this man, I mean, if this, this guy, he's right. He's, he's right with God. He, he's a good guy. And they were so wrong. They were so, yes, he did good things, of course. I'm going to deny that. But as far as his relationship to God, it didn't mean that he had some in with God because he did good things. People sometimes think like this. They think, well, I mean, think about the, another way this situation could have gone. This man's slave gets sick and he goes, God, I've, I've, I tried to serve you. I gave this money to build the synagogue and this is what you do to me, God? And sometimes that's how, and that's, that's betraying a vision of God that says, God, you owe me. And so I give to you and you give back to me. The problem is God doesn't need anything from you. God doesn't, he, he, he's not served by your hands he, he, as, as though he needed anything. And that's what this man gets. He gets that God doesn't need anything from him. He needs everything from God. Can you get good things from God because you're good? No, <laughs> God gives good things to bad people because he's kind, because he's generous, he's gracious. He built the entire synagogue. What more could you do to make yourself worthy? And this just strikes against works 
righteousness, self-improvement, religion, that just says, if I just try harder and do better, you're going to do better than this guy? And this guy builds the synagogue. I mean, he is doing everything he can, and yet it's not enough. It's not enough because that's not how it works. How you see Jesus and how you see yourself are linked together. And part of the marvel of this man's faith is his total unworthiness and humility. He gets it. He understands who he is because he understands who Jesus is. And just think about how rudimentary a knowledge of Jesus he has. He just heard things. He's just heard things like us, right? He's heard the stories about Jesus and he goes, I need this man. I need to trust in this man. I am unworthy before this man. And he has all power. He understands who Jesus is. That's why he says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. He's in essence saying, I know you have the power of the creator. You don't even need to see my servant to heal him. You just say it and it'll be done. Don't come any further. And so here we see the unworthiness. It's an unlikely faith. It's unworthy faith. Faith sees its unworthiness. The person who has faith in Christ sees that they are unworthy. Christ is worthy and therefore they must have him. Notice third, I cheated. Here's two words, under authority, under authority. This is a faith that recognizes that it's under authority. It's under authority. Verse eight, here's the logic. Here's how this guy's thinking, okay? You just say the word Jesus and my slave is healed. Four, verse eight, here's the reason. I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This man gets the issue of authority. He himself is a man under authority. He is under the authority of the emperor, of Caesar. And he says, I get it, I know, I'm under his authority. But I have people under my authority, Mine is a delegated authority from Caesar and I can command people to do things. And when I give a word of command, they obey. It's simple. It's like, hey, go, done. Come, come. And and then he references his slave, his servant. He says, you know, hey, do this. And he does it. It's like the intern. He's like, hey, go make me some coffee, like interns, you know. And he does it. But now he can't. His servant can't do that. What is he implying by this? Well, there's a number of things by comparison what he's implying. It's, a, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. This is how authority works. One writer said, thus, a soldier of the world's most significant army complements Jesus' authority and equates it to authority within a military unit. He knows that Jesus is this powerful. This man says to Jesus, in essence, hey, I tell my servant to go and run an errand, you know, to get me some coffee, and he gets it. It's that easy for you to just give the command, and he's healed. He's brought from death to life. That's incredible what he's implying in that. J.C. Ryle says this, he declares his confidence that Jesus is an almighty master and king and that diseases like obedient servants will at once depart at his orders. He gets it. The authority of Jesus' words are that immense. In creation, God creates by means of his 
word. And God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. That's not a mistake that when John gets to his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word. Right? God creates by means of his word. Psalm, this is a fascinating psalm, uh, just a verse rather, that seems relevant to our text. Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. (laughs) That's what he's asking here. Just send out your word and it's done. This man believes he has so much authority that he does not even need to see the slave to heal him. This is a remote healing. He can simply speak it. And the slave is brought back. Even though physically absent, it, does, it is no hindrance to Jesus. He knows Jesus' authority is everywhere. Just say the word. Jesus has divine power. He's not localized such that he cannot act in other places. He is localized as the God-man, but his power is not. The divine nature is ubiquitous. It's everywhere present at all times. And so he recognizes the authority of Jesus. And this is part of what true faith is. True faith recognizes Jesus is king. He's the authority. He's the authority over everything, and in particular, over my life. He rules. He has say in my life, and how I live, how I think. I must submit to him as Lord. You have not exercised saving faith if you have not recognized that Jesus is Lord that he is the sovereign, that he is king, that he has all authority. Part of saving faith is that you recognize you're under the authority of Jesus. And this is why I love the end of, of, of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, that they were astonished at him for he spoke as one with authority. He spoke as one with authority. And this guy, though he may not have been at the Sermon on the Mount, maybe he was, don't know, he recognizes that very thing about Jesus. This man's words come with authority. And, and that's true for us, okay? So this is how you came to faith. You heard the word of God. You heard the words of Christ. And you recognize these words have authority. These words are different. They demand my life, my all. I must submit to him. I must trust in him. And so this is saving faith. It's under authority. It's under authority. Well, this leads us to the final, the fourth word here, and it is the word uncanny, uncanny. Uncanny is like something supernatural. It's something that just blows your mind. Uh, the comic book X-Men, or the, originally it was called the uncanny X-Men. You know, like, how do you explain this? How do you explain their powers, right? But this is an uncanny faith, an unbelievable faith. It is a supernatural faith. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Remember, this man is not even standing in front of Jesus. He's in his house. poking through the window, you know. uh, What's happening? You know, his servant slave is there. His servants are relaying his message And Jesus is astonished when he hears the the message of the servants. What this guy said, he's not going to come out? No, he's not worthy. He he can't be in your presence. 
And Jesus marvels at this. He's emotionally overcome by this. This shows his true humanity. Usually it's Jesus amazing everyone, but this man's faith amazes Jesus. He's marveling at it. And we said before, there's only two times in the Gospels where Jesus marvels at something. The first is, oh, one of them is here, but there's an earlier account. And Mark mentions it in Mark 6.6. And Luke records the event in Luke chapter 4. And in Mark 6.6, it says about Jesus at his hometown in Nazareth and how they responded to him in unbelief. And he says this, he marveled because of their unbelief. He's just blown away. He goes to his hometown where he's grown up. He preaches to them and they want to throw him off a cliff. And he marvels at their unbelief. Great privilege and yet unbelief. Here he marvels at a man who really has none of those privileges. He's the most unlikely candidate for faith and yet here he is believing. And he marvels at this man. Just just appreciate these opposites here that are being brought out. The marvel at unbelief for those who have great privilege and the marvel at true faith in those who who really have none of those privileges. And yet, God brings about faith in this man's heart. Jesus turns to the crowd and makes this very point. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Here, he's making this transition to Gentiles. He's rebuking the lack of faith that is in Israel. Now, this is not to say that there is no faith in Israel. Of course, we know there's exceptions to this. There's Anna, Simeon, Elizabeth, Mary, John the Baptist. You know, there's a number of examples, but those are the minority. That's the remnant. On the whole, there's not faith like this. This man's faith is so impressive considering who he is. Phil Riken summarizes this well. He says, many things about the centurion's faith were amazing. It was amazing for such a mighty man to see that he needed help. It was amazing for such a good man to see his unworthiness. It was amazing to find someone who was willing to take Jesus at his word with complete confidence in the power of his command. But it was totally amazing to find all this in a Gentile, someone outside the covenant community. It was hard enough to find an Israelite who trusted in Christ. But here was a Gentile, a Roman soldier no less, with surpassing faith in the word of Christ. Uncanny. Unbelievable. Finally, verse 10. Almost like an afterthought. Verse 10. Oh yeah, yeah. What happened to the what happened to the slave? Verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. There he is. He's better. It's like Luke's way of showing that this isn't the main point of the story. This is the side point. The main point is this man's impressive faith in Jesus. I love how Ryle explains this. He says, without even seeing the sufferer, without touch of hand or look of eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. That's power. That's authority. Actually, Luke doesn't even record Jesus saying a word. (laughs) I mean, maybe he did, but the man says like, just say a word and he'll be healed. And Jesus doesn't say a word and the guy's healed. I mean, 
this is power. This is authority. He just thinks it. He's like healed. You know, it's like, and, and it happens. This is incredible. The question for us is whether we share the faith of the centurion. Does your faith amaze Jesus? Because it's faith in Jesus. How unlikely this is. How unworthy this man and we are. How under authority this man is. He recognizes that he gets it. And how uncanny this man's faith is. If you don't know this faith, Christ has the power to create this faith in your heart, just like he created life in this man by speaking a word. It'd be great if you don't know Christ by faith, if you were just to say, Lord, you have all authority. You can just say the word and there will be faith in my heart. There will be life in my heart. There will be trust in you. You can bring me from death to life. You can regenerate my heart and give me a heart that loves you. It is so easy for you. Even though he's not physically present here, just like for the centurion, this is how powerful. You're not worthy enough, but he is able enough. But what a picture this man is though and of other centurions, of how transformative the gospel is. I mean, this guy, who would have thought a centurion like this, this man, would become a follower of Christ? And here he is. He loves Christ. He trusts in him. What great faith. How rare it is to find true faith, and how likely, unlikely a place to find it. And yet, the reason for this amazing faith can only be explained by amazing grace. Unlikely faith comes because of amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those of us who have faith in you that it came. You caused life. And here we are. We love you certainly not as much as we hope to or ought to, but there's real trust in you, real love for you, a real acknowledgement of your authority, of your power, of your forgiveness, and we continue to trust in you. This story helps us to do that. Lord, we just think, how unlikely is it that, that we here on a different continent and this story even took place in, thousands of years later, sit here embracing your son, whom we've never seen physically. We've heard the stories though. And our hearts are drawn to him because of your spirit and continue to be drawn to him day in, day out as we, we want to know more of him. We want to trust him more. We want to point others to him escort them to the Savior. And, and so we, we, we pray you encourage us today in the faith that you've brought into our lives and increase our faith. Give us great trust in the power of your word, the authority of your word. You will accomplish all your purpose effortlessly. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.